Be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to two different places, and I want to apologize. I got it wrong on the screen. Um, I always, when I think of John, I'll automatically go to John 14, 6, but uh, Jeremiah 9 and John 17. So Jeremiah 9 and John 17, and while you're turning um, to today's verses, I want to talk to you or introduce you to someone, and I, I did this a few years ago and just felt led to kind of do it again, um, introduce you to a, a man named James Smith. He was born in Huntsville, Alabama in the 50s. He graduated from Madisonville County High School in Danielsville, Georgia. He also graduated from Samford University with a degree in human resources and, and then later from the Southeast Baptist Theological Seminary um, with a theology degree. He married his wife, Jerry Lynn, in 1982, and they have two children together, Josh, um, a son and daughter, Jamie, and both of them are married. Josh and his wife um, also have a daughter named Mateo. Um, James is very politically conservative and probably um, too opinionated when it comes to politics. Um, he is also, unfortunately, an Auburn Tiger fan. Um, James has pastored churches um, in Alabama. He has worked with the North American Mission Board, and he is currently a director of missions um, in a Baptist association in Alabama. He's also very missions-minded. He's actively involved in promoting the mission work, in fact, even sponsoring and help sponsoring a church in Ecuador. He also works with the Isaiah 58 Project, which helps um, clothe women um, who are leaving prison, so it's a great ministry for women. So all in all, James is a grateful husband, grateful father, proud grandfather, a passionate missions director. And I say all of this, introducing this man to you, just so I can make this confession. I have no idea who James Smith is. Um, and wondering what the most common um, name for a man in the United States is, Siri informed me that it was James Smith. So I went to Facebook. I searched the name James Smith and found this guy that I have four mutual friends with. I spent about 15 minutes on Friday stalking his Facebook page and writing down the information that I um, just shared with you, and of course it didn't seem that weird until I stand in front of you and admit that, but yes, I did stalk his page for 15 minutes, and social psychologists are going to say that I do not know James, that I only know about James. Um, they would uh, use the term impersonal knowledge and personal knowledge. And impersonal knowledge is what you have of an acquaintance, or if you've ever been a fan of somebody, you know a lot about that person, and you make it your business to know all about them. You would recognize them. You could even approach them and start having a conversation with them. I mean, think about this. I know enough about James Smith to really freak him out. I mean, that's how much I know about him. I could approach him and I could begin to tell him about his life, ask him how Jerry Lynn is doing, ask him how Mateo is doing, and he would probably look at me a little, little weird and say, do I know you? Do, do I know you? Which begs the question, I think of all of us, what does it actually mean to know someone? What does it actually mean to know someone? We can unpack so many external details, even me about James's life, and yet... I don't know him. He doesn't know me. And the reason I'm choosing to begin this way this morning is, is two reasons. First of all, as we've just heard, we live in a context where most people that we encounter, most people who are in our, who are in our inner circles would identify themselves as Christians. 
Yet, the concern would be that many of those only have an impersonal relationship with God and not a personal one. I mean, they can tell you a lot about God. They can tell you about what God did for them, um, for the world, and God so loved the world. They can tell you about that, but they do not know Him personally. In fact, the fear is one day them approaching God and saying, I'm here, and hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And then secondly, this morning we come to our 18th message in our series called Behold, where we are looking at the attributes of God. We have been unpacking attribute after attribute after attribute of our great and awesome God. Yet the concern in doing so is that as we're learning all of these truths about God, that we will know a lot of things about God, but my fear is that we will stop short of actually knowing God. Don't stop short. Don't let your knowledge of what you think you know about God make you stop short of actually knowing Him. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? J.I. Packer issues an amazing challenge for us to consider when it comes to the attributes of God. He says, it is possible to know about God without knowing God. This is the danger of sterile intellectualism. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that since we know a lot of things about God, that we must know him well, when we really don't know him at all. Do you know him? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're looking at the attribute of the knowability of God, which kind of sounds weird, but what it means is this. Our God can be known. And let me even say this. Our God must be known. For if you do not know him, you will have none of him forever and ever and ever. We must know him. I read a story this week um, where Henry Ford once told a visitor uh, to the Ford Motor Company the exact number of parts in one of the automobiles that uh, had just been completed on the assembly line. And he said there are exactly 4,719 parts in that model. And he said that with his face glowing that he had that amount of information a little later um, the, the same visitor asked one of the engineers whether the number that ford cited was actually correct and the engineer dismissed the question and said this i'm sure i don't know and honestly i can't think of a more useless piece of information than to actually know that so you have one who knows the exact number of parts on a car and, and then the engineer that says ah I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. And here's the, here's the picture of what I'm trying to paint. I don't know how many various attributes there are of God. More than we could ever wrap our minds around. But I do know this. They are worthy of our study. They are worthy of our study. And we, we cannot, we must not disconnect them, each attribute from the whole Of who God is, meaning the point of this series is not to present a God who is made up of parts, that He is part love, part holy, part glorious, part this, part that, part something else. No, all of God's attributes are connected to the whole of who God is, meaning um, we want to behold the fullness of God. We want to behold God for who He is and who He has revealed Himself to be um, to us. Let us not be satisfied. Please, let us not be satisfied with knowing truth about God. Make it your aim to know Him, to know him. I think again of J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He says, the more complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of it. 
So the more complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of it. And as we've walked through these attributes, there have been times I pray that we have stood back and just scratched our head and said, what is that about? Or I don't get it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we serve a God that we cannot define on a bumper sticker. It's a good thing that we serve a God that leaves us sometimes just going, I I don't know, but he is. And remember the ongoing theme of our series. It takes God to know God, meaning the only reason we are able to know God is because God has revealed himself to us. If you know God this morning, it's not because you are smarter than the average person and somehow you um, tracked God down and called him in, a, in an alley somewhere and said, I got you. No, that's how he found you. Yes. That's how he found you. And so um, God has revealed himself to us. He, he's chosen to reach down and reveal himself. Yet let me say this. There are hindrances to us knowing God. There are hindrances John Snyder writes these words, and if, if you grew up in my age, I think of John Snyder, I think of Bo Duke from the Dukes of Hazard. Um, that's not this guy. This guy is a whole completely different person. But he writes these words, and they're so true and so profound. He says this, any person who wishes to know God must drag his dirty mind, selfish heart, and rebellious will into the light. Terrifying experience for any sinner. The fear of being exposed for what they really are deep inside is another reason why people refuse to know God. We must be willing to drag our dirty minds and selfish hearts and bring it into the light. And let me tell you what happens when we do. God's not surprised. God's not surprised. God's not looking at us going... I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this one. This one's a little bit more than I can handle. This one's a little bit more out of my reach. No, God knows us intimately, and he loves us anyway. He loves us anyway, drawing us to himself. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at these two scriptures um, in Jeremiah 9 and John 17. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 9, and then... um, John 17, 3. And when you get there, let me hear you say. Or when you see it on the screen, you can do the same. And it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then if we can look at John 17 and verse 3, and these are the words of Jesus in this high priestly prayer. And Jesus says this, John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. And Lord, as your word just says, as you say, so many things we want to boast in. But God, help us to ultimately, Lord, boast and glory in the fact that we know you. That we know you, God. That you have made yourself known to us. That you are knowable. That although, God, you are transcendent, you are above all, 
more than we could ever wrap our minds around. Yet, God, you have drawn near. You have come near and you have revealed yourself to us. Help us to see the beauty and the depths of that today. And Lord, I pray even now, right now, for any in this room that do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they come to understand who they are apart from you. And they would come to trust you, Jesus, as their Savior and their Lord. Have your way. Lead us into your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So the, the story has been told. And I said last week I normally don't like to do um, kind of athletic things, but I uh, found another story. When, and this is a very famous story of Muhammad Ali when he was the current reigning world heavyweight champion um, at the height of his fame was on an airplane that was preparing to take off and the flight attendant came by and reminded him that he needed to fasten his seatbelt. To which Ali responded, Superman don't need a seatbelt. And to which the quick-thinking flight attendant responded, and Superman don't need a plane. So buckle up. And they said that he buckled up and uh, did what he was told to do. And the beautiful thing, think about, if, if you know and never remember Muhammad Ali, he was famous for his obnoxious boasting, I guess is the best way to say it, in which he would try to intimidate his opponents by always saying, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Well, what we have seen over the last 18 weeks is that our God is indeed the greatest. He is the greatest. He doesn't need a plane. He doesn't need seat belts. He is the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. In fact, he created the natural laws that keep the airplane where it's supposed to be and not where it's not supposed to be. God is great and he is so highly exalted above his creation. The Bible teaches that he is, and we're going to, about to dive into this, he is incomprehensible. Yet God is so loving that he has come down to earth and revealed truth to us so that we might know him. We don't learn a few things about God and then walk away acting like we've learned enough. No, nor having studied about God should we ever conclude that we've learned everything there is to know about God. It's sad that many have gotten that place. They think they have enough information about God. But do you have him? Do you have him? This morning, I want to unpack, and, and normally I know we do the three truths, and then we've kind of been doing crazy, but two truths today related to knowing God and the God that we are able to know. And I pray that we would just grab a hold of these and understand the beauty and the depths of these. So the first truth is this. God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. So to say that means that it doesn't mean that God is unknowable. It means that we can never fully or exhaustively know God. God is infinite. We are finite. We can never fully understand or know everything there is to know about him. Think of the psalmist in Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We can't get to the bottom of his greatness. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 put it this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. God is greater in depth. And we are. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
way higher than our ability. Charles Spurgeon spoke of the incomprehensibility of God this way. As well might a gnat sink to drink in the ocean as a finite creature seek to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp Him, He would not be infinite. If we could understand Him fully, He would not be divine. So not only is God's whole being incomprehensible. Think about this. Each of God's attributes are incomprehensible. We can't get to the bottom of His eternal nature or His greatness or His power or His holiness or His glory or His love, His fullness, His wrath, all of these things. We can't get to the bottom of His character. We can know His character. We can know Him in these ways, but we'll never fully exhaust those attributes. And let me just, I want to quickly unpack four truths concerning why God is incomprehensible. I think that helps us understand this. First, we already said it, but God is infinite and we are finite. God is incomprehensible because of who he is and because of who we are. By definition, we are creatures and we are dependent upon our creator. We depend on him for our very existence. We depend on him for that breath we just took. In fact, if God decided that we wouldn't have that last breath, we wouldn't have had it. And we wouldn't have taken it. We are so dependent upon him. We depend on everything that he gives to us. And this creator and creature or infinite and, and finite gap will always exist, even in heaven. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. But then secondly, the perfect unity of God's attributes are far beyond what we can experience. I Meaning, think about God's attributes. We, we sang about his grace and his love. We can experience God's love and we can feel like we have or are experiencing the fullness of God's love. And yet get this. He still has more. He still has more. We can be at the um, lowest moment of our lives in our sin, cry out to God for his grace and his forgiveness, and he gives it to us. And guess what? He still has more. He still has more. For where our sin increases, grace increases all the more. Grace abounds all the more. That's the beauty of it. And then third, our sin keeps us from knowing God as we should know him or as we could know him. Sin has, hasn't, hasn't destroyed our ability to know God, but it has diminished our ability to know God. The tendency of fallen creatures, the tendency of everyone in this room, we've talked about this week after week, the tendency of us is to distort and pervert God and to make him into our image. Instead of worshiping him for who he is. We want to take God and we want to make a God that we can understand. A God that always responds to our bidding. Who does everything we want him to do. And the problem is this. Oftentimes, if you want to know who your God is. Most professing or I won't say most. Um, some professing Christians. They need to look no further than the mirror. Amen. They look in the mirror. They will see that they are worshiping themselves. They're worshiping themselves, and they've created a God in their image and using him for some kind of selfish gain. But what we know is this. Sin has created a barrier um, between us and between God. The late Puritan John Owen said this, We may speak much of God. We can talk of him, his ways, his works, his counsels all day long. But the truth is, we know very little of him. Our thoughts, our meditations, our experiences, expressions of him are low many of them are unworthy of his glory and none of them reaching his perfections 
Let me just say this. May God deliver us of small thoughts concerning him. May God deliver us of that. That we would not ascribe to God things that he is not worthy of. That we would not ascribe things to God that brings him down here. That we would continually magnify him. Even things we don't understand and even things our flesh don't like. Because of the standpoint of that's who he is. Don't let your sin get in the way of diminishing or perverting this God. And then a final reason why we can never know God fully is that in God's sovereignty, in his sovereign wisdom, get this, God has chosen not to reveal certain things to us. I know that, that we don't like to hear that, but Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you want to look it up just to know that I'm not making this up, you can, but it says this, the secret Things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. But the secret things belong to the Lord. Many would, would, would say that it's unloving of God to ever withhold anything from us. Why would God ever do that? Some people believe that God owes them an explanation for everything. That God owes them this and God owes them that. And um, remember, as we say all the time, we don't want what God owes us. So just, just keep that in mind. We don't want what God owes us. So we, we, we want to come to him humbly and everything. And if God chooses not to tell us why, we trust him. We trust him. Here's what I know. When we walk through things, whether it be at a funeral or whether it be at a doctor's office where we hear news that we don't want to hear, and oftentimes our number one thought is, why, God? Why? Here's what we have to understand. We have to understand that sometimes God is silent to our questions. That sometimes God won't answer our questions. He is silent to our questions. But let me say this and let me remind us of this today, brothers and sisters. God is never silent to our need. For in that moment, what we need most is not answers. We need his presence. And he is not silent in that way. And he will give us everything we need exactly when we need it because he is good and gracious in that way. Oh, that we would understand that. And think about this. I said this earlier, even in heaven. So in heaven, God's incomprehensibility will no doubt be lessened because we will no longer be plagued by sin and ravaged by sin like we are here yet even in heaven, God will still be infinite and we will still be finite. And meaning we will continue to depend on him in every way. And get this, we will never get to the bottom of him. Never get to the bottom of this God. Don't you dare fall into the belief that when we get to heaven, second you step in, you're going to know everything there is to know about God. And then day two, you're going to be bored. No, we will never, ever, ever get to the bottom of this God. We will eternally be thankful that God is different than we are. We'll be eternally thankful that God has um, no need to sleep. He never gets tired. He never has told a lie. He's never made a promise that has failed. God holds no false beliefs ever. And what divine incomprehensibility, what it means is this. It means that we will never run out of reasons to worship God. We'll never run out of reasons to worship God. We'll never. There will always be a new reason um, for worship and for um, bowing our knee to Him. So we cannot know God fully. We cannot know God exhaustively. But hear this. We can know God truly. 
we can know God truly. So that's the second point. So God is incomprehensible, number one. But number two, God is knowable. God is knowable. We can know God truly. We can know God personally. And we can know God sufficiently. We can know him. And knowing him is our highest privilege. There's no greater privilege in our lives than knowing him. So even though we can't know God exhaustively, we can know true things about him. In fact, all that the scripture tells us of God is true. Whether we like it or not, it is true. It's true. When the Bible says God is love, he is love. When the Bible says God is light, he is light. When the Bible says God is spirit, he is spirit. When the Bible says God is just, he's just. When the Bible says that God is worthy, He is worthy. He will forever be worthy. And to say this does not imply or require that we know everything about God or that we know everything about his love or about his righteousness or any other attribute. But it is to say this, we can experience his love. We can walk in his light. We can live knowing that he is worthy. So what should our boast be? God says it in Jeremiah 9, don't boast in your wisdom, don't boast in your power, don't boast in your riches, don't boast in all these things you've gotten on your own that you think you have. He says this, let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me. Listen to what God says. If you're going to boast, the greatest thing you could ever boast about is that you know me. You know me. Listen, this room is filled up with people. I know us. We like to boast about our kids and our grandkids and our sports teams and our this and our that and our something else. And those things, there's a time and a place for that. But ultimately, if we're going to boast, how often do we boast in who God is? How often do we boast in what he has done? How often do we boast in the fact that we can know him? Our ultimate joy should not come from what we know or possess, but it should come from the fact that we know him. We know him. And not only does the word teach us that God is knowable, the word teaches us, hear this again, we must know him. We must. In John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is Christianity? Think about this. What is Christianity? Some say Christianity is a philosophy. Others say Christianity is an an ethical stance. Others claim that Christianity is an experience that we have. But the problem is none of those get to the heart of the matter. Christianity has its core, hear this, in the fact that there is a transaction between a holy God and sinful man. A person who becomes a Christian moves from knowing about God distantly to knowing about him directly and intimately through Jesus Christ. Christianity is this, knowing God. It's knowing God. Knowing God is not just part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. We are able to know him. God is knowable. He's knowable, although he cannot be known Perfectly, he can be known truly. Do you know him? Do you know him? It would seem when we read through scripture that one of God's favorite words is a very personal word that seems to indicate his desire to be known. 
It is the word come. We read it all over scripture. God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Or he says, all you who are thirsty, come, come and drink. Or in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come to me or come to the wedding feast or come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Our God is a God who invites he is a God who calls. He is a God who is calling us to himself. Not just to know stuff about him, but to know him. God is a God who opens a door and we see his hand hovering over a table that is prepared for us. But understand this, God is not just inviting us to a feast. He is inviting us to life. He's wanting to give us life. He's wanting to come in and us to dine with him and him with us and have this personal relationship with him. It's an invitation from God for us to come into the kingdom and eventually to reside in a tearless, graveless, painless world. Think about a day when we won't have any doctor's appointments Never have to go to a funeral. Never have to scratch our head and wonder what just happened. Never have to go through those things. But think about this. God says to us, come. Come. You can know me. I want to make myself known to you. But here's the question. Who can come? Who can come? Let me just say this question or this answer today. You can. You can. You are not here by accident. You are here because God in his absolute love for you has brought you to this holy moment. You are here because God desires for you to know him. That God is drawing you to himself. And you might not even have a clue. You might not even have a clue that God was doing so. And then all of a sudden you watched a video of a man who was in prison who we would say he's done for. And what does God do? He brings him life. And we begin to say, well, man, if God can do that, maybe he can do something in my life. And then you hear these words, come, come to me, come to me. If you're weak and heavy laden, if you're tired, if you can't do it on your own, come to me and I will give you rest. You won't have to keep working for it. We sang a song, I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I could ever do could atone, could atone for my sin. It's all in what he has done for us whosoever calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved do you know him today do you know him or let me ask you this do you want to do you want to know him today do you want to know him you can you can let me end with a quote, and then we're going to enter in and do something maybe is a little weird and, and end a different way than we normally do. But J.I. Packer says this, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. 
Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. Do you know him? Let me end this way. I was talking to a man last night who called me, and I haven't talked to him in years. And he was telling me about him and his wife had been to a church, and some of the things he said, I was like, okay. And he said, I just need a, I have a question to ask you. I, a guy's been coming to our church. I invited him, and he, he came, and, and um, he just found out this week that uh, he has cancer, and it's stage four. And he said, I don't know what to tell him because he's coming to church. He's doing everything he's supposed to do, and God's not healing him. What should I tell him? And I said, man, you don't want my answer. I don't think you want my answer. And he said, yeah, I want your answer. And I said, I would tell him and ask him, what's the goal? Is his goal of doing all that just so he can live a life where he gets everything he wants and never has any sickness or pain or sorrow? Is that his goal? Or is his goal God? Is his goal God? Here's the reality. I sat in the doctor's office on, on Friday and more questions and all of these things. And in my, in my heart in that moment, fear wanted to come in. And fear wanted to just wash over me. And in that moment, I had a decision to make. And I said, no, God, you're going to get the glory. I don't care what that looks like. I don't know what it looks like. But God, you are going to be glorified. So therefore, God, glorify your name in this. Glorify your name in this. So what is the goal of our lives? Is it ourselves? Is it so that we never have to walk through pain? Or is the goal of our lives? We get God now and we get him forever. Amen. Do you know him? Do you know him? I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward. As we're going to enter into a time where we're going to end with a beautiful thing of, of observing communion. But let me say this. The Bible makes it very clear that we are not to approach this table in a haphazard way. We're not to approach this table in an unworthy way. We're to approach this table knowing, first of all, knowing God. Knowing God. We would say this, if you don't know Jesus, don't participate in this today, please. Or we, we say it this way, participate by watching us. Watching us as we come and celebrate what our Savior has done for us. How his broken body and his shed blood has made a way. And watch us celebrate that. And what, I, what we're going to do in, in this moment is, number one, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're here today, and maybe you have never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, but in the midst of what you've heard from our Gideons and what you've heard from the Word of God, maybe this day God is calling you to Himself. Maybe God is showing you that you don't know Him, but you need to. If you're here this morning and you would say, hey, I, I know that I, I know God. I am saved. I am born again. I know him. If you would say that as a testimony to what God has done, not what you've done, what he has done, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can you raise your hand as a testimony to that? Praise God. Praise God. You can put your hands down. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, hey, I, I don't know him, but I want to. If that would be you this morning, I want to ask you, as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, for you to, to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Is there, is there any? Amen. Amen. The Bible tells us very clearly that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We know this. We are sinful. We are sinners. We have missed the mark, and we cannot save ourselves. 
The only thing that we are worthy of is separation from God forever. But God in his infinite grace made a way for sinners to be saved. And that way is a beautiful way. It's Jesus. Jesus came and he lived a life we could not live. A life of perfection. He died a death for the sins of the world that we could not die. And he rose from the grave. That if you call upon his name, you will be saved. And you will be saved now. And you will be saved forever. Oh, that today would be the day of salvation. That you would, from the depths of your heart, cry out to God.